Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Copyright 2020. Prologue 1. All knowledge is remembering. I met George on a spring day in 1997 in a backroom smokeasy on the east side of Vancouver. It was his 30th birthday. The Arthrology was a private club in a low-rise white stucco building with street access through an unmarked entrance on Main Street, not far from Broadway. The outside door was unlocked by a swipe card that was issued to members on acceptance. The inside door was activated by the club bouncer who screened arriving patrons on a security feed. Membership was by referral only. The rules printed on the swipe card were simple. Nothing up your nose but your finger. No chemicals allowed. If you visited the club, you could purchase cannabis at the bar. But if you brought your own supply, you were welcome to consume it there. Harm reduction clubs were quietly opening in cities all along the West Coast following the lead of California, which at the time was in the process of legalizing cannabis for medical use. Advocates for medical cannabis and for commercial hemp legalization frequented the club, and so did lawyers and artists, journalists and entrepreneurs. The conversation about legalization was just beginning, and the arthrology had currents of civil disobedience, anti-establishment, art culture, and black market business running through it. The owner of the club had commissioned George to paint a full mural in First Nations style on the main wall of the club. I'd been watching the images come together for several weeks, hoping I'd have a chance to meet the artist, and curious about the subtle totems and images painted into the moon, the sky, the tree line, and the ocean in the foreground. There was an owl and a frog, and a salmon among others painted as if to emulate the images in a mind's eye. The ones like foreman clouds on summer days. He arrived in working clothes in the early afternoon carrying a plastic grocery bag filled with his supplies. We exchanged greetings, and as he was unpacking and getting ready to paint, I pulled the cellophane from the top of a new pack of Maurier's and offered him a cigarette. He took one and sat down across from me. As he was about to light it, I began asking him questions about the mural. He put down the lighter, moved his brushes and paints to the side, and sat back looking at me. I'm sure it was only a brief moment before he leaned forward and broke off half the cigarette. He took the tobacco out of the paper and picked up a box of wooden matches from the coffee table. He lit the pinch of tobacco between his fingers, and as the first hairs yielded to the flame, he gently blew on it, raising the heat and billowing smoke as he encouraged the glowing cherry. "'What are you doing?' I asked, as he dropped the smoldering pinch into a clean ashtray. He lit the other half of the cigarette inhaled deeply, and looked at me. We give the first tobacco to the Creator when we speak of sacred things, he said. The smoke carries our prayers to the spirit world. I'd been through a couple of survey courses in global religious traditions, and I'd developed a basic vocabulary in the spiritual terminology of the East and West. I found a void of information about the stories and traditions of the people of the West Coast. That is, outside of pure academic analysis. I'd been scouring the university libraries and my favorite bookstores for primers, and I couldn't find what I was looking for. During those months, I joined the arthrology and watched as the mural came together, hoping for the opportunity to learn from the artist, and George, as I learned, was Nizhka from the north. I'd grown up in a rigid Christian home, and the rules of my house were that as long as I lived at home, I was expected to attend and to participate in church. This meant that I was in the youth group, 
the vocal choir, the bell choir, and that I taught at summer Bible school until I was 16 or 17. At one point, my parents and our pastor sat me down and outlined my path to becoming a pastor myself, beginning with education at a Christian college in the Canadian Bible Belt. I turned this down. My youthful rebellion was my exploration of psychology, philosophy, comparative religion, and mythology. I studied the historical origins of Hinduism, the pantheons of India, the philosophies of Buddhism, Zen, and Tao. It was all dry knowledge, though, until George dropped that smoking pinch of tobacco into the ashtray, and then something came alive for me. I've been wanting to learn about the mythology of native people, I blurted out. The spirits I paint aren't myths, he said. They're, they're real to us. He butted out the cigarette in the ashtray and looked at me, and I, I felt embarrassment in my cheeks. You have spirit guides too, he told me. You've just forgotten them. George is a residential school survivor who was taken from his home as a child. He was removed from his culture and sent for assimilation education in the 1970s. I'm only four years younger than he is, which means that when I was a Boy Scout meeting in the basement of the Anglican Church, his brothers and sisters' souls were being divided against their own culture and tradition. It means while I was learning the Golden Rule in Mrs. Moore's class, George was getting the Indian beat out of him. By his 30th birthday, he'd been working his way back to his community for a number of years. He traveled far on the healing road, learning from his traditional art, language, and reclaiming the knowledge of his traditional medicine. When we got past my gaff and we fell into a comfortable conversation, he opened up about some of the deeper stories of his traditions. Before he did that, though, he asked me to respect that in his culture, the tale belongs to the teller. What I understood that to mean was that I could hear his stories, I could learn from them, but I couldn't share them with anyone else. That afternoon, he introduced me to the sacred knowledge of spirit animals, totems, and the medicine wheel. It was the kind of primer I was looking for. George had come to meet his own spirit animals when he undertook his healing journey after returning to his community. He learned carving and painting and his traditional language from his elders, as well as learning his own medicines. In some cases, his elders broke federal law by teaching him. And this was the reality for Indigenous people all over North America for much of the 20th century. Governments forbade the use of their native languages and banned the practice of festivals and ceremonies like the potlatch and Sundance. Governments attempted to destroy the memories of the First Nations by outlawing the telling of their stories and the singing of their sacred songs. Governments even passed laws against the traditions of dancing and drumming. The great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion, as speedily as they are fit to change. That from Sir John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada. The last residential school in British Columbia closed in 1984. George was still high school aged. He was able to return to his community and to remember parts of him that the institutions tried to take away his language and his art and his traditional medicine, and he was one of the fortunate ones. In George's culture, each individual has a number of spiritual influences which act as reflections, guides, and meditations through life. These are living and dynamic forces, and he stressed that I could understand these things too. As we talked, I learned that he laughed easily and gently, especially when I showed my ignorance or lack of understanding. 
I was like a curious child asking about what makes the sky blue and where babies come from, soaking up information from him and humbled by his story, by history. What can you tell me about a vision quest, I asked. I'd been working up to asking this for a while, cautious by that time that many of my questions came from ignorance. It's you, hey? He said, you're the guy. When he said this, chills washed over me from the top of my head and down my neck to my shoulders, as if an icy mist was descending on me. What What do you mean, I'm the guy? I'm the guy? George hadn't painted anything all afternoon, and we were getting to the end of the Demoriers. He nodded towards the pack, as if having another cigarette was the right punctuation for the moment. We've been waiting for you. Time and space seemed to distort in a strange deja vu, one of those moments in life where I felt like I was going through a long tunnel or the floor had opened up and I was falling into it. What do you mean, waiting for me? Well, the First Nations people of North America have stories about the white men who grow their hair long and they come to learn from us. We and the other traditional people of the earth are the keepers of knowledge, and our elders tell us we'll be the ones to remind the rest of mankind about their relationship with the earth and with their own spirits. We've been waiting for you. Who is we? Why me? I protested. George began to laugh. Some friends of mine and I have been praying about a vision quest. We were waiting for one more person to come along, except it's not the kind of thing where you go looking. We were waiting for you to come to us. Josh is a Dutch Maori. He was a chaplain for the UN peacekeepers in Europe, and Shig spent a few years in a Buddhist monastery in South Korea. He's a master of Tai Chi and practices Chinese medicine and acupuncture. We came together the same way you and I did when they asked the same question. There is supposed to be four of us, and since you asked, it means you're coming. I felt a knot tighten somewhere in my core, and a sense of purpose descend on me like a weight. I'd spent most of my twenties in transience, studying, traveling, unencumbered by deep commitments to places or people. I was a deliberate outsider to the conventions of the workaday world, asking dumb questions about art and creativity and God. I'd known many travelers and heard many stories of strange journeys, and so it only took me a few minutes to surrender to what seemed like fate and to embrace the idea of a, of a new kind of adventure, one like I'd never experienced or imagined. When are we going to go? George smiled. We'll go when the time is right. What does that mean? How will I know when the time is right? I, I have to make plans. I have to take time off work. I have to take time off school. You know, like, are we going next week? Is it next month? We'll just know, he said. Maybe, maybe we'll have a sign. What do you mean a sign? What kind of sign? I decided to change course because he was laughing at me. He seemed to like to tease. Where will we go then? We'll work with an elder, he said. We'll find the right place. But I need to be prepared. What kind of gear will I need? How will I be ready? The more I asked questions, the more George laughed. His eyes shone with what I saw as mischief and mirth and maybe even a kind of fraternal love. <laughs> we'll find an elder, he said, and a firekeeper when the time is right, and we'll go into the woods and we'll build a sweat lodge. We'll fast from food and water for a few days while we pray and prepare ourselves for the ceremony. Then we'll build a sacred fire. We'll call the grandfathers. We'll call the spirits and our guides, 
and we'll go into the sweat, he said. That's where we'll seek our vision. What's it all about, I asked. I, I've, I've heard about it. I've read about it. What's the vision quest about in the first place? It's our chance to ask the creator a question, he said. Just one question. The club bouncer came round to let us know that the arthrology was closing soon. How will I know what the question is? Well, that might be a good question to start with, he said, as he began packing his paint supplies, clean and unused, into the grocery bag again. We stood and hugged and said our goodbyes. I left through the double set of steel doors and stepped out into the late afternoon daylight back on Main Street. My head was swimming, wondering what the next steps would bring and who these others were that I had yet to meet. It seemed absurd, fateful, even a bit supernatural. I walked north suddenly possessed by the idea that when the time was right, I'd have the opportunity to ask God one question. So I began my search to uncover the right one. I left the corner of Main Street and Broadway, and I began to remember. Prologue 2. The Great Forgetting. The most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. George Orwell. Cannabis prohibition is an example of a collective forgetting and remembering. When I met George at the Arthrology two decades ago, the echoes of the reefer madness propaganda and the reverberations of the war on drugs still overpowered the voices of protest and harm reduction. Pot politics in the 90s was a marginalized mishmash of anarchistic bullhorn rallies and Rastafarian colors. Even though the Canadian government had done studies in the 70s about legalization, published in the Ladane Commission report, and the government knew that cannabis legalization was ultimately the path, U.S. drug laws bullied global policy. The details of that history are now available to anyone with an internet connection. In the 1930s, William Randolph Hearst owned newspapers and media all over America, just like modern-day Rupert Mur Murdoch owns the Fox Media conglomerate. Hearst once bragged that he could start a war using his media influence and was the mogul responsible for turning the American public and the world against hemp and cannabis. Our relationship with cannabis and hemp as a species is long, and some have made the case that it was our first domesticated plant. What we know as marijuana is a slang term for cannabis flower, which is the unfertilized flower of the hemp plant that, when heated above certain temperatures, produces the psychoactive we know as THC. Hemp plants also produce the longest, strongest natural fibers in nature, and up until nylon was invented, which was a byproduct of the petrochemical industry, hemp had been the source of material for industrial rope and for ship sails for many centuries among the earliest textiles archaeologists have ever discovered, are hemp, and cannabis flower incense has been used in religious ritual for thousands of years. We can assume, perhaps, as a way of connecting to the spirit world in antiquity. The modern world was rapidly changing in the first decade of the 20th century. The automobile was being mass-produced. The airplane had been invented. Radio and electricity infrastructure was being deployed throughout the developed world 
and the oil industry was taking over from coal and steam as the principal supplier of energy to the world. The concept of the assembly line was being cross-mapped from the Ford plants to all kinds of other applications. Breakthroughs in hemp processing had opened up the potential to create a massive industry. A popular mechanics cover story from the 1930s claimed that hemp could be processed into tens of thousands of consumer products, from clothing to paper to cellulose to oils for paints, even biofuels. Hemp seed is also one of the most nutritious, protein-dense seeds on the planet, more nutritious than soy. Historically, hemp stalks, which can grow to 20 feet tall in a single season, had been difficult to process because of the tough cellulose bark of the plant. Fiber extraction involved soaking the cut stalks and letting the tough sheath of cellulose decompose for months before hand-pounding the stalks to remove the fiber. By the 20s, though, technology had advanced enough to make this months-long process much more efficient, and the commercialization of hemp was a threat to the petrochemical industry. The DuPont Corporation, the oil industry, the timber industry, and the clothing industry were facing direct competition from a sustainable plant called weed, which any farmer could grow just about anywhere in North America. What's more, renewable hemp produces four times the amount of fiber per acre than timber does. The barons of America, owners of timber and oil rights, were facing direct competition from a democratizing and disruptive force that would have distributed wealth across the population of America and the world instead of concentrating it in the hands of a few. Those few reacted to the threat. Hearst shamelessly used his media might to push the agendas of his cohort of wealthy industrialists, and he set about to destroy the competition using his media empire. His campaign wasn't waged against cannabis and hemp, which were widely understood by Americans. It was against the Mexican devilweed, marijuana. Hearst's sensational and inflammatory editorial agenda propagandized the idea that this marijuana, the cannabis flower, was responsible for Mexicans raping white women and blacks rampaging as violent axe murderers. He conflated the devil weed with the same racist tropes and xenophobic hysteria we're familiar with today in the age of Donald Trump. He fanned the flames of hatred to shift the minds of Americans into believing that marijuana was the root of all society's problems by tying it to racial hatred. The campaign to demonize marijuana was supported at the highest levels of the U.S. government and the U.S. economy. It was supported by the Secretary of the Treasury, by the U.S. Congress, and by the Senate. Timber interests, paper industry interests, chemical interests, oil interests, and fiber interests were all aligned against the emerging hemp processing technologies. Twenty years ago, before the naked greed and corruption made visible by Trump and his administration... These claims sounded like conspiracy. In the world we live in now, however, it's obvious that organizations like the NRA dictate U.S. gun policies against the vastly popular desire for sensible gun control in the U.S. We recognize that corrupt pharmaceutical companies fuel the opioid epidemic that has killed millions of people worldwide by pushing it on people who didn't need it, raking in tens of billions of profits in the process. We know that the coal and the petrochemical industry spend billions to deny climate change and to fight against legislation that would limit their profits. We know that the tobacco industry knew for decades that smoking caused cancer, but they fought until governments and class action lawsuits brought them down. 
It's not such a stretch anymore to believe that these same self-interested forces were at play in the 30s and that William Randolph Hearst used his media influence to affect public opinion and to sway government policy. Cannabis prohibition and its return to acceptance in society is an example of a brief forgetting and remembering. The casualties of this have been millions of poor and powerless black and brown people of America who have either been incarcerated on cannabis-related charges or whose family members have been jailed, compounding the damage to the economic unit of the family for generations after generation. The casualties of the colonial policies of conquest and assimilation of the Aboriginal people of Turtle Island are even more profound. They span centuries instead of decades, when Columbus arrived in the New World, there were 60 million indigenous people here, those who didn't die of the disease brought by the Europeans or who didn't die because of the technological imbalance between European gunpowder and the projectile weapon technology of the indigenous people, faced systematic cultural genocide in residential schools like my friend George did. The loss of nearly 60 million people in North America is an unimaginable horror the incarceration of millions of people for cannabis production, distribution, and the devastating impact it's had on countless families is a blight on Western society, but these are only small examples of forgetting. The great forgetting began more than 2,500 years ago and placed upon us the curse that Alan Watts called the taboo against knowing who you are. It became a truly global shift in consciousness in the dying days of the Roman Empire, but it happened so long ago that we've forgotten the trauma of losing parts of our humanity, ones that George and his traditional brothers and sisters were able to hang on to. We live in the world now disconnected from reality as crippled creatures whose souls have been sterilized by this cataclysmic erasure of mind. One of my compatriots on our vision quest calls what we've lost our indigenous self, I call it the shamanic mind. I'm not writing about my vision quest. It's not a tale I can tell. I'm writing about what I've learned and what I've remembered since. The clue to these things lie in what George taught me that afternoon, in May of 1997, that the spirit world is real, and that understanding it and our relationship to it is our human birthright. It's especially vital in an individual level to the person who is at a crossroads in life, wondering how to move forward on their soul's journey. That's what led me to ask the question in the first place. Author's note. We are at a crossroads indeed. As I'm recording this, it is the 2nd of April 2020, and we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. We expect that hundreds of thousands or millions of people around the world will die from this, and our whole life has been turned upside down. It's in moments like this when we start to question meaning in our lives, when we are disconnected, when the floor opens up as if to swallow us, like I felt when George told me that I was the one coming on the vision quest. In fact, we're all on a vision quest right now, and the questions that we have to ask ourselves or about what's important in our lives. What are the things that we value as individuals, as families, as communities, and as societies? End note. Prologue 3. The Question. A vision quest, beyond any other definition, is an inward journey. It may involve leaving the world we know behind and traveling to a place with others. It may involve engaging in fasting or other denials. 
It may involve rituals. It may involve a sweat lodge, a mountaintop, a dark forest, or it may not involve any of these things. The ultimate aim of the quest is realizing an internal transformation. We might call it an alchemical process. We embark upon a vision quest when we begin to sincerely ask questions about our soul and about our purpose. It's a journey available to any human being capable of asking those questions sincerely. But to find the answers is a perilous undertaking. If you're thinking about leaving Main Street and Broadway and undertaking the quest, the classic warning, be careful what you ask for, applies in flashing neon lights. Leave your expectations behind. Traditionally speaking, a vision quest is a universal rite of passage that celebrates and marks the transition from childhood to adulthood. It's a moment in life marked by a ritual when children are initiated into adult society and leave childish things behind. By the time I met George that day in 1997, I was already 26 years old. A bit of a late bloomer by the standards of many cultures. It's an aspect of our modern culture, however, that the transition from childhood to adulthood is delayed. The more complex a society is, the longer the dependency cycle is. A generation or two ago, it was normal for men and women to be married in their early 20s or even late teens. Graduating from high school for a baby boomer was often enough to find a place in the working world with enough stability and income to be able to support a family. This isn't the case today. In addition, with the advent of reliable birth control, families are able to delay the age of starting a family, and many wait until their mid-30s to have children, extending the onset of adult responsibilities by almost 20 years. At the same time, we've moved away from tradition and ritual as a society, and we're bereft of the markers in time that celebrate the significant shifts from one stage of life to the next. Graduating high school is lovely, but final exams in a dance don't constitute trials of the soul or affirmations of identity and life purpose. Another call to vision quest happens when people are facing crisis in life, or like we are in the world today, facing a collective crisis of the coronavirus. Perhaps this is why you're reading this book. In the years between meeting George and writing this, I've been working in a career role where I've had counseled people through what I call the things of life. I found myself working closely with people through all stages of life, from starting their own careers and businesses, to getting married, to having children. I've worked with families through untimely loss, life-threatening illness, and existential crisis of all kinds. I've been through great victories, terrible tragedies, and unexpected surprises, and I can say that the moments that test us in life aren't just moments. If you've had or know anyone who's had a major transformational life event, these moments can destabilize us, consume our energies, and transform our lives. By definition, we're in new territory. And when we're in unfamiliar places, we start asking questions. Questions like we're collectively asking now as we globally face this crisis. These are times when we question our faith, we wonder about our place in our families, our place in our communities, and our place in the world. We wonder about the nature of the afterlife, and God, and about our own souls. This is the quest beyond the ritual. In those moments, some of us will question our faith, our mortality, our purpose, our relationships, and even who we are. When that thing of life leads us to the crossroads, the question we need to ask 
as individuals and as families and communities are different, different for everyone. The one question is the one that goes to our nature, to our soul and to our existence. Who am I? What's the nature of reality? What am I here to do? What am I here to share? This is what the ancient and sacred ritual of Vision Quest observes and celebrates, a soul's journey. In times and cultures past, there was a framework for asking these questions. There were roles in our society that filled this need, and there was a ritual to mark them. Before the great forgetting, the keepers of knowledge in our communities, the medicine people, the storytellers, the hermits and the crones would guide us. Today, we have longer lives but no memories. Our souls have been sterilized in the modern world, and if we truly want to find the answers to our questions, we have to remember the nature of the soul.